This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the studios of Audio for the Arts in Madison, Wisconsin, is Bill Malone. He's a professor emeritus of history from Tulane University and the world's most noted expert on country music. In fact, last year in 2018, a new edition of his great book, Country Music USA, was issued and updated. It's still considered the Bible of country music by historians, by musicians, by aficionados of country music, you name it. I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Bill Malone. He was here in Columbia a few years ago when he helped us do a program on SCETV called Take on the South. And so, Bill, welcome back, friend, and let's start talking about country music. Okay, I'm always glad to talk about that subject. Thanks for having me back. Bill, you're from a little town in Texas. Actually, it's from the country. We lived uh, about, oh, 20 miles outside of Tyler, Texas, up in the northeastern part of the state. I was born and grew up on a farm, and then my family moved in to the Tyler area, uh, when I was about 10 years old, you know, as part of that great migration that a lot of rural people made in those days from towns and cities, uh, from countries into towns and cities all over America, but particularly in the South. That part of Texas is just not too far from Louisiana. That's, that's a part of Texas that most folks still consider Southern. That's right. It's about 100 miles from the uh, Louisiana line, and the people who came there originally— of course, were the Native Americans. They were already there. But white people came in with their slaves and before the Civil War from states like Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina. So East Texas was a cultural extension of the South. And it had all those, the same values, religious, uh, 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 eating patterns, uh, music, all that sort of thing, put it in the Southern orbit. It was oil that made all the difference. In the uh, teens and 1920s, oil was discovered uh, in many of these Texas communities, and that really began to set the, the area apart from uh, other parts of the United States. You got your start in terms of becoming an authority on music by singing it, right? Well, I grew up with it. Uh, first, I like to say that the first country singer I ever heard was my mother, you know, singing around the house just to relieve herself from the drudgeries of being a housewife. Or she sang when she was worried about something. You know, she, generally it was an old gospel song, or it might be an old sentimental parlor song. And then in 1939, we got our first radio, Philco Battery Radio, and we began to hear the radio hillbillies from, uh, from Shreveport and Tulsa and Dallas and Fort Worth. And then, of course, about that same year, we heard the Grand Ole Opry. I fell in love with, uh, with what was then called hillbilly music, and that's a love that's uh, endured. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to do my part to preserve it and to document it and to make people know about the, you know, where it came from and what it means. Let's talk about the development of what people call country music. Uh, I've had the opportunity to preview Burns's, parts of Burns' film, and at one point— one of the commentators said, country music is three chords and a story. Three chords and the truth. And the truth, okay. Yeah. 
I think the writer Harlan Howard may have been the first person to use that term, and I think it appeared in one of his songs. Well, three chords and, a, and the truth, the three chords and a story. I think about that and the country music I heard growing up and what I hear today, they're almost 180 degrees apart. There may still be a story, but it's not just a simple three chords. Well, it doesn't sound the same either. I don't I have to confess that I don't listen to a lot of contemporary country music, mainly because I just don't think it's very country. I think it's probably telling a story, as you indicated, but in uh, melodic content and, and instrumental background, it's uh, pretty uh, similar to uh, pop rock music. It's, it's not the down-to-earth, working-class music that I grew up with. Well, let's, let's talk about that and how it changed over time, because you do, you do cover that. I mean, a lot of folks think Emmylou Harris out of L.A., and I heard her described as more country than country, and a term I did not like, that she was country without the corn, which meant that that person was saying, well, all that stuff out of Nashville, the hillbilly music, that was kind of well, corny. Well, some of the um, best country music is being performed by people like Emmylou Harris, who didn't grow up with it, but they, they have an affection for it, and they try to present it in an honest, authentic way, respectful of, of its roots. So much of what's called country music, they doesn't have that kind of respect. Uh, Emily, actually, she, she, I think she was born in Birmingham. Her father was a military man, and so they traveled a lot. So she had some experience with the South, but uh, when she started out in music, she was uh, very much influenced by Pete Seeger, people like that. She was a, an urban folky, you might say. And she was won over to country music by Graham Parsons, who came from an even more privileged background than what she came from. But he had that same respect for country, and he tried to imitate it and, and present it as uh, honestly as he could. Emmylou Harris, I consider contemporary. Um, she'd been around a long time, though, now. She, she uh, began in the 60s. So that's a long time ago. It's funny, it's funny how time can get away from you. <laughs> hey, hey, I was in college back then, Bill. So. <laughs> <laughs> now we're mature citizens. Uh, weren't quite so mature back then, probably. You mentioned growing up in Tyler that the oil boom changed the town and the area. But in the past, you've talked about contrasting the honky-tonk of the oil boom with older Appalachian music because particularly here in the Carolinas, when we think about country music, it's in many cases just a step above what some people would say, the folk music, uh, as interpreted by people like, I mean, Chaz Joyner used to write about that. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I think the uh, Appalachian is a greatly overused term. I think country music came from a wide variety of sources, both regional and economic. It, uh, you know, a, lot, a lot of the best music flourished in East Texas, far from the Appalachians. The father of country music, Jimmy Rogers, was from uh, northern Mississippi. Uh, Hank Williams was from uh, Alabama. So it's uh, really very misleading to, to call the music Appalachian, although there were a lot of good musicians, musicians who came from that area. And in the beginning, 
when it was first being commercially exploited, it was folk music in, in every sense of the word. That is, it was music of, an, of anonymous origin. People didn't know and didn't care where it came from. It's just something they grew up with, something their parents had done, an old fiddle tune that might have been passed down from generation to generation, or an old ballad that had been around for a long time. But musicians, they, they accepted anything they heard if it was good and if they liked it. So it was, it was truly folk music at that time. And then when radio and recording began exploiting this music, then it began to have a sort of a commercial evolution until it evolved into the uh, highly uh, complicated, sophisticated music that we hear on, uh, on radio today. When you use the term honky-tonk music, let's flesh that out a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, back in the uh, 1920s, early 1930s, Country music, or hillbilly as it was then called, still reflected its backcountry working-class roots. People sang and played gospel music. They they played old fiddle tunes and old ballads. But in the uh, 1930s, when oil discoveries were made in various parts of East Texas and up in Oklahoma and in Louisiana— Musicians began to go to those communities to, to play music because they, they thought they could make a few few dollars from the, the oil workers. Uh, oil working was a way of making money during the Depression, an opportunity which most people didn't have. And so musicians began to play in the oil communities. Uh, bar rooms and taverns began to appear. And then when uh, Prohibition was repealed in 1933, and these places could begin offering beer and whiskey for sale, then that provided another incentive, not only for customers to go there, but for musicians to go too. And they began to play for, for dances in, the, in these taverns. And at some point, people began to refer to these establishments, large and small, as being honky-tonks. And the music that developed in the honky-tonks reflected the, the, the values, the aspirations, the frustrations of the people who gathered there. Honky-tonk music was essentially dance music, but lyrically, you know, it spoke of um, everyday problems, getting drunk, trying to hold on to a job, trying to keep, keep your lover, uh, a lot of issues that made it uh, seem distinctive. The first person to use honky-tonk in the title of a country song was Al Dexter, who in 1936 recorded a song called Honky-Tonk Blues. And so the music just began to expand after that. And naturally, when it became possible for musicians to electrify their instruments, you began to have electric guitars and electric steel guitars. And again, that, that helped to set this music aside. But honky-tonk music was a working-class music that reflected the needs and values of working-class people. Well, this is something you and Bill Ferris talked about when you were in Columbia five or six years ago, and that is, what about the blues in relation to country music, because the blues are working class. That's right. Well, in a sense, you, you really shouldn't separate these musical forms, because African Americans hear, heard the music that their uh, white neighbors were playing. They often listened to the same radio shows, and I guess in some cases, they may have even bought the same records. 
But the, the, the record merchandisers began to separate this music. They put it in separate catalogs and gave it different names. The white music they called hillbilly or country. The black music they called rhythm and blues or blues. And when, when actual fact, those music sort of circulated, they, they uh, influenced each other. And white musicians like Hank Williams and Elvis Presley and Jimmy Rogers, they grew up hearing black music. They, they were fun to the blues. Uh, hillbilly musicians have always loved the blues, and they incorporated into their music as early as the 1920s when Jimmy Rogers made a, a name for himself as Mississippi's Blue Yodeler. Oh, okay. Well, one of the things that, that you cover in your book that, as a historian, I'm fascinated about, not just the, the music, you mentioned distribution earlier and how record companies classified music. In South Carolina, at least what was distributed, what was, it was called race music. That's the uh, That's right. That's, that's a term I should have used. I, I just forgot it. But all of us white folks listen to it sometimes to the chagrin of older white folks who didn't think that was particularly appropriate. That's right, and it was, it was really hard to uh, segregate radio listening taste. You know, a teenager would get off in his uh, jalopy. If he, had, if he had a radio available, he would listen to whatever he wanted to. Or late at night, when his parents weren't paying any attention, he might tune in a blues station from, from Memphis or Nashville. And so we don't know for sure who, who was listening to the radio. We know that Charlie Pride uh, listened to both white stations and black stations as he was growing up, so he absorbed country music along with race music. Same was was true of Ray Charles. He heard uh, all kinds of music growing up, and he even played country music for a while when he was a teenager and a young man trying to make it in music. Let's talk a minute about Charlie Pride. Charlie was from a little town called Sledge, Mississippi, in, in the Delta, and as he was growing up, you know, he just loved music of all kinds. He listened to country music when he could. He listened to the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday night while also listening to the, the blues and, and race music that his uh, cousins and other people listened to. Then he started singing country music when he was out in Montana working in, uh, in a, a mine out there. I, I'm kind of hazy as to what exactly what he was doing, but he was working in Montana and trying to play baseball on the side. And a country music troupe came through Montana. They heard him singing. They were impressed by uh, what they heard. So they encouraged him to try to make it in music. And that was, of course, during the uh, civil rights era when the musical forms were very rigidly segregated. And so Charlie took the very bold step of trying to make it in country music, which had the reputation of being a white man's music. But he was such a good singer, capable of doing any kind of style, that uh, people loved what they heard. And his recording label, RCA Victor, kept his racial identity unknown for, for a while. They just played the music of Charlie Pride, and they let people figure it out for themselves. So when they when they saw Charlie Pride in concert, a lot of people, you know, were were very surprised. Here's this black man singing the white man's music and singing it just as well or better than white people could. In in the 21st century, this just sounds very strange that this is white music, this is black music, and one of you know white folks weren't supposed to be able to sing black music and vice versa. I mean, it's. It's crazy. I mean, that's right. Music is music. 
And, and uh, young people demonstrated just how foolish the designations were in the late 50s and early 60s. I guess it even started earlier. But during the, the end of the 50s, they started listening to black music, and they made heroes of people like Fats Domino and Clyde McFadder and Ray Charles. And then when white boys like J. Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley came along singing this music and mixing it with their own, they, they, made, they created a national craze. These young white boys were the first Southern white people to really make it in commercial American music with, with a style of music that was highly integrated, highly amalgamated. Talking about the, the 50s and white boys listening to music, there was an African-American radio station in Mobile, WMOZ, and our housekeeper listened to it all the time, and my sister and I spent a lot of time in the kitchen we could hear music there that we couldn't hear on any of the other radio stations. That's right. And you didn't realize it at the time, but you were part of a musical revolution, changing the, the musical taste, the musical approach of the entire nation. That, if I were to go back and tell my, my, my father and mother that, they'd probably have a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Bill, we've got to pause for a moment for station identification and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Bill Malone, the author of Country Music USA, and the nation's authority on this fascinating part of American cultural history. One of our reasons for this fabulous conversation with Bill Malone is that public broadcasting will have a special on country music, a Ken Burns film country music, which will air in September of this year. Bill, if we could go back and sort of do a timeline in the 20th century on country music, start it out and bring it up at least into the early 21st century. Up into the 1920s, there was no such thing as country music. People made music at home or in church or in some sort of community uh, function, but in the 1920, around 1922, 3, and 24, radio stations began to utilize this music. They began to invite fiddlers and string bands to come into the station and make their music. And at about the same time, uh, the record labels like uh, Columbia and Victor and Jeanette uh, be began recording this music too. So it was radio and recording which made this whole home, homemade music available for a much wider consumption. So then country music began to evolve. Its first so-called stars, you might say, would be Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, both accidentally recorded at the same time in August of 1927, when the Victor Talking Machine Company went to Bristol, Tennessee, and, and recorded a number of performers. Uh, Rogers became known not in his lifetime, but later on, as the father of country music. Of course, the Carter family, Maybell, Sarah, and A.P., uh, they introduced a body of songs which people still sing today. And, of course, Maybell Carter introduced a style of guitar playing which was wide, widely copied. All right, all right, let's just stop now and mention a few of those songs that the Carter family have made. Well, The Circle Be Unbroken... Uh, everybody knows that, I guess. Uh, Keep on the Sunny Side, The Wildwood Flower, which was Maybell's uh, signature song on the guitar. I'm Thinking a Night of My Blue Eyes. 
you know, just, just to name a few, but uh, during the urban folk music revival of the late 50s, a, a lot of people like Joan Baez began singing these old Carter family songs. Bob Dylan sang them, and uh, they became wide, widely known. Luckily, uh, Maybelle Carter was still alive. But by that time, she was performing on the Grand Ole Opry with her daughters, Anita, Helen, and June. And June eventually became the wife of Johnny Cash. So that just kept the uh, the name going, the music going. There was, country music is that way. It's, it's music of family relationships. I can remember when Cash covered Circle. Uh-huh. And the rock group, I, I guess it'd be right to call them a rock group, the, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, they'd put out a very famous, uh, popular album called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? They recorded a few songs with people like Roy Cuff and Merle Travis. I'm not sure Bill Monroe was on it, but a lot of the top singers of the day. Okay, we digressed a little bit from our chronology. We got up to the late 1920s, so let's move on with the, the history of country. Well, in the, in the 30s, uh, Bob Wills, among others, out in Texas, uh, popularized a, a style of string band music, which we now call Western Swing. He and his fellow musicians were the first to uh, utilize jazz and blues and pop tunes along with the old fiddle tunes. And today, Asleep at the Wheel is, is our most important carrier of that tradition. They, they still do Western swing. Also, in that same decade, as I mentioned earlier, uh, um, the music began to move into the bars and taverns, and it be, eventually was described as honky-tonk music. The chief exemplar of that music would be Ernest Tubb in the 40s. Then in the early 1950s, Hank Williams carried on that tradition, but he introduced something new in that he, he wrote songs that were picked up by people like Tony Bennett and Joni James. He was the first country musician to see his songs cross over the musical barriers and to be picked up by pop singers. Very important transitional uh, phase. We also might mention Gene Autry, I guess. Gene, you know, Gene Autry had gone to California in the 30s, and he popularized the, the singing cowboy. So there was a vogue for uh, made-for-movies cowboy songs. And today, I guess, the, the group Riders in the Sky would be the most important carriers of that uh, Gene Autry tradition. Well, I, I, was, I was thinking about, about Hank Williams' songs, and I guess the one that keeps has always stuck in my mind is Hey, Good Looking. yeah. Cold, cold heart and your cheating heart, whole bar volume of songs. And, and some of those songs from the late 40s, early 50s, like Jambalaya and Shrimp Boats are coming, kind of crossed over into popular music, did they not? A lot of them did. Yeah, as I said, Hank was the first, and uh, the, the publisher and songwriter Fred Rose working with Mitch Miller. You know, they, they made that phenomenon happen because Fred Rose would gather the songs of Hank Williams and others. He would present them to Mitch Miller, and then Mitch Miller would have people like Guy Mitchell and Joni James and Tony Bennett do them. You, 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 I'm sure our listeners remember Mitch Miller. He's the guy that had all the sing-alongs on TV back in the 50s. Bill, you mentioned Mitch Miller. Uh, what was his role with in the record industry? Yeah. He was an interesting guy. He was classically trained and was highly respected as a classical musician, but he became the artist in repertoire or the Anar man for Columbia. And he, more than any one person in popular music, engineered that crossover phenomenon. He was willing to take music from uh, 
Latin background or from jazz or blues or country, wherever he heard a good song. And he got pop musicians to uh, record them. And in, in that way, American music was more fully uh, homogenized. And, of course, it pop, became popular around the world. Seems to me, again, I'm going back to my childhood, which is decades ago, but Rosemary Clooney did Jambalaya. Yeah, Jambalaya and Half as Much, both of them Hank Williams songs. So we're into the post-World War II period now. Let's carry on with the trajectory of country music. Well, one song that cut the biggest uh, early crossover song was the Tennessee Waltz. Pee Wee King and his Golden West Cowboys, uh, Pee Wee along with his lead uh, vocalist, Red Stewart, wrote the Tennessee Waltz one day when they were driving in their car and they heard Bill Monroe doing the Kentucky Waltz. So they said, well, we can do the same thing for Tennessee. And a number of Tennessee, a number of country music performers recorded the song, but they really hit pay dirt when Patty Page recorded it, and it became the biggest seller in pop music history up until that time. And from that time on, you know, the, the, the barriers between musical styles began to uh, break down, and music began to be more and more mixed. One of the heroes or legends of country music is Hank Williams, and he did write a lot of songs, but if I'm remembering correctly, he didn't write music. I mean, he wrote the he wrote the lyrics and he could play, but he didn't write musical scores. Is that right? That that was true of a, a lot of country songwriters. They they didn't know music. They had no musical training, so they would put their songs, uh, or they would sing them enough that somebody who did know music could write down the notes or they would put them on tape or the equivalent. They, they could write lyrics and they could make up melodies, but they couldn't write them down. So they generally had to get a musical arranger to do, do that for them. So in many ways, didn't folks, because they couldn't do that, their work got picked up or copyrighted and they didn't end up getting the credit that they should have? Sometimes that happened. And of course, there were people who did that for a living. There was a songwriter in Knoxville I think his last name was Pritchett. I, for, I forget his first name, but he performed under the name of Arthur Q. Smith. And he wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs. And the story goes that he, that he sold them for $10, $25, $50, just whatever he needed to get a drink. He had a serious alcoholic. And a lot of songs that became you know popular hits in country music came from his pen. And he uh, received only an initial payment for them. But songs floated around. You know, it's kind of hard to come up with an original melody. Sometimes people would use somebody else's melody and not realize they were doing it, or they would have their melody stolen from them. The, the first uh, songwriters to really make it big in Nashville, the first people to go there for that, the express purpose of writing songs, was a husband and wife team known as Boudelow and Felice Bryant. They they really hit pay dirt in the late 50s when the Everly Brothers recorded such songs as Wake Up Little Susie and Bye Bye Love and All I Have to Do is Dream. And after that time, songwriters began to flourish and they began to see their names put on song sheets and on records, whereas in the past, songwriters had often gotten no credit at all for a song that might become an international a smash seller. I guess growing up listening to the Everly Brothers, I didn't consider that country music. That was something we listened to on our top 40 radio station in Mobile. Uh, well, that's just an indication of what was happening to music in general. 
Elvis was the first to really break down the barriers. And then, of course, I guess actually first it would be Mitch Miller and Hank Williams. And after that, it was Elvis. And then in the late 50s, the, the rockabilly, so-called, began to hit big in all the charts. Pop, country, rhythm and blues. There was no rock and roll chart at that time. They came later. But Everly's were country singers in every sense of the word. They grew up listening to this music. They sang it when they were kids as part of their their family's band. Their father was Ike Everly, a, one of the best guitar players in the country music business. And uh, in, in the late 50s, they were trying to make it in country music. They went to Nashville, and Archie Blyer of the Cadence record label, who was trying to uh, move his label into the recording of country talent. Uh, he uh, got the Everly's recorded in uh, a Nashville studio, and the first songs that the Everly's did were songs written by Boudreaux and Felice Bryant. And so those songs were unbelievably big sellers. They made it big in country, in the country charts, in the pop charts, and in the R&B charts. And then they moved across the Atlantic. They did a lot to generate interest in American music in, in England and the, the British Isles in general. And a lot of people, including the Beatles, you know, so in a sense, the Everly's took the music to England and the English singers brought their, their adaptation of the music back to the United States. Well, it all begins here in the South. We know that, right? That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking about Wake Up Little Susie, Silhouettes on the Shade. All I have to do is dream was huge for them. I take a message to Mary, walk right back, which, you know, one of Buddy Holly's backup musicians, who unfortunately, whose name, unfortunately, I'm not remembering right now, wrote. So we've got the Everly Brothers, Elvis, moving into the 50s and 60s. Then there begins to be a profusion of singer-songwriters, people who made music through their talents as performers, but who also could write the songs they did. I'm thinking of Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn, Tom T. Hall, Roger Miller, and my favorite, Merle Haggard. Of that group. I knew Tom T. Hall personally. He was a good friend of Tom Kindly, who was a history professor here at, oh, at, yeah. at, at Carolina. I remember the year that Clayton Delaney died, Homecoming, the Battle of $40, on and on with Tom T. Hall. Bill, you mentioned the, the singer-songwriters like Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton. Um, but what about the changes in style that started, in, particularly in the 60s? The styles that... Country music underwent in the 1960s were in part just the culmination of an evolutionary process that had begun many years before. The instruments were better. Uh, electronics had become much more complex and, and uh, more successful. The, the, the studios were improvements over what they'd had in the past. And the people who were performing this music were better educated. They were exposed to all kinds of music. The young people grew up listening to rock and roll and the pop, and they either consciously or unconsciously incorporated this music into their own. So people just uh, were able to build upon the past. Not only were there instruments a state-of-the-art but the the electronic process that made it possible to make records had uh, had improved to state-of-the-art, too. Of course, the changes, the demographic changes in the country and the political changes 
meant that more and more people were coming into the music, people who had not grown up in the country, people who had not grown up with a working working class parents, all, all kinds of ethnicities. Char- and Charlie Pride was in the vanguard of the African-American entrance into country music. So um, the music just showed influences from uh, m- multiple quarters, m- multiple origins. And I think the civil rights revolution and the, the women's revolutions encouraged recording people to look for talent who could uh, profit for, from, from those changes. You began to see more and more women participating, more and more people from a different ethnic past led by people like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Buffalo Springfield, Graham Parsons, Emily Harris. More and more young people began to come into the music and playing for a youthful audience who was willing to experiment and listen to different types of music. There was a resurgence of interest in working-class people, and for the first time in its history, people began to talk about country music being a working-class music. It always had been a working-class music, but it wasn't self-consciously so until the 1960s. And in part, I think that was a product of the rise of the so-called silent majority and the blue-collar revolution, which you know, resulted in political change in the United States, and it also you know, inspired change in musical taste as well. Well, is, is this a time in, in the 60s when, and I'm going to use the term Southern music, country music, really becomes American music, it becomes national, because mm-hmm. you've got Southerners, white and black, living in Detroit, in New York, in L.A., in Seattle, and Madison, Wisconsin, and wherever. Does country music really begin to lose some of its Southerness or some of its soul when it becomes uh, national? Well, I guess country music had always been, throughout its history, had, been, had gradually been losing its southernness, you know, as it attracted a bigger and bigger audience, not only in this country, but around the world, it began to lose some of its southern qualities. Also, maybe the, the musicians didn't sound quite as southern as they had in the past because of common public schools and the, the mixing of people. <clears throat> uh, the suburbanization of the United States meant that people were becoming mixed, you know, right, different backgrounds. and uh, So, you know, as, as the country changed demographically and racially, the, the music changed too. I, I think you could still tell in many cases where, where the musician came from. He, he didn't sound quite like his father or his grandfather or his great-grandparents before him did. Bill, continuing with our, our timeline on, on country music, things begin to change in the 60s, but in the 70s and 80s, country really becomes commercial. And in your book, you talk about that really had an impact on, on the field. Yeah, in the 80s and early 1990s, there, there were people in what was described as country music who made it bigger ec- economically than any musician before them. The, cheap, the best example would be someone like uh, Garth Brooks, who began to sell out major arenas and had huge crowds in uh, Central Park in New York City using state-of-the-art techniques. He, not only could he roam the uh, stage like a rock star, he could float above the stage like Peter Pan, <laughs> depending on the, uh, the, the devices that they had. So there, there's no phenomenon in, in country music just like Garth Brooks. 
I think vocally, he still sounded pre pretty country, and he, he, he had some good songs. He was still singing songs with good messages to them about just everyday people, although he certainly was not an everyday person himself. Bill, we've got to pause for a moment for station identification and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Bill Malone, the author of Country Music USA and the nation's authority on this fascinating part of American cultural history. One of our reasons for this fabulous conversation with Bill Malone is that public broadcasting will have a special on country music, a Ken Burns film, Country Music, which will air in September of this year. Well, I guess one institution in country music we haven't even talked about at all, and that's the Grand Ole Opry and what it started out and what it is today. The Grand Ole Opry started out in the mid-1920s as a sort of a disorganized barn dance broadcast over station WSM in Nashville. WSM means We Shield Millions. It was the, the radio branch of the National Life and Accident Insurance Company, and it was designed as a device to sell cheap insurance policies. But they were, they, were, they, were, they were surprised at how popular this music was, so eventually they began having it every Saturday night. And it started out with local performers, but they gradually branched out and began bringing musicians in from other parts of Tennessee. By uh, the late 30s, people like Bill Monroe from Kentucky, Roy Ica from East Tennessee, then uh, Ernest Tubb from... Um, Texas, they began to change the nature and the personnel of the music. And on that same year of 1939, it began to have a 30-minute slot over NBC, and people everywhere in the United States could hear it. So it became sort of the citadel or, or the mother church of country music, and the dream of most country musicians was to one day be able to broadcast from that station. So they typically would, would perform on Saturday night, and then during the week they would go out and make one-night stands and then drive like the Dickens to get back into town on Saturday to do their Saturday night show. So, And Grand Ole Opera still exists. Of course, it's lost a lot of that working-class appeal and allure that it had back in the 30s and 40s. And the performers are no longer as uh, dyed-in-the-wool dyed hillbilly as they were in the beginning. Now they... They feature all kinds of performers, rock and country pop and bluegrass and old-timey, just about every style that country music possesses. You mentioned going on radio. Eventually, in the 50s, the Grand Ole Opry went on television. First, it was just uh, segments of it that were taped and then syndicated. I think there were experiments and experiments in, in, in uh, broadcasting the Saturday Night Show, but I don't, I, they didn't stick with that, though. Occasionally, you, you can see the rebroadcast re segments of the Grand Ole Opry, but generally they're, they're staged presentations that uh, were not really part of the Saturday Night Show. Well, in addition to the singers and the musicians, we can't talk about the Grand Ole Opry without mentioning Minnie Pearl. Minnie Pearl came, I think, around 1940 or so. She was a well-educated young woman from central Tennessee, her father was able to send her to a girls' finishing school. Yes, she w she went to Ward Belmont. She and my mother were classmates. And uh, she started studying uh, drama and poetry, and she created a character 
known as Minnie Pearl, and did some one-night stands dur during the, the Depression years. And so someone, I, I, I may be hazy on this, but it seemed like someone from the National Life and Accident Insurance Company caught one of her shows one night and persuaded her to come to the Grand Ole Opry. And she was as popular, or maybe more popular, than most of the musicians who performed on the show. People came to the Grand Ole Opry to see her. They came to the road shows when she went out on the road with the performers. She continued to perform into the 1960s with her signature hat with the price tag hanging off yeah. of it. Yeah, and her stock stories. People are expected her to... Uh, they, they enjoyed new, new jokes, but on the other hand, they expected Minnie to be the same old girl that they'd grown up with. They expected to see that hat, and they expected her to talk about her brother Hezzy, no, her brother and her boyfriend Hezzy. And, uh, I, of course, people the same way about the musicians, too. They expected them to do the same popular songs they'd always done, whether the performers wanted to do them or not. I guess Roy Acuff did the, the Wabash Cannonball and the Great Speckled Bird every Saturday night on the Opry and almost to the day he died. Where does bluegrass fit into this, this picture, Bill? Bluegrass was a, was a form of country music when it started. I think if you'd ask those early musicians what they were playing, they were playing, well, we're just playing music. And they, were, they were part of the hillbilly act, but it gained distinctiveness over the years, and people, uh, fans and uh, merchandisers began to describe it as bluegrass because it resembled the music originally made by Bill Monroe with his bluegrass boys. Bill went to the Grand Ole Opry in 1939 with his uh, string band, the Bluegrass Boys. He was looking for the right musicians. He kept experimenting with people. He finally came up with the band he really liked, in 1945, right after the end of World War II. And, of course, a lot of bluegrass uh, partisans still think this is the greatest bluegrass band that ever played. It included Lester Flatt on guitar, Chubby Wise on fiddle, Cedric Rainwater on bass, and most important, to me at least, was Earl Scruggs on the five-string banjo. Because Earl played a style of banjo that most people had not heard before. It was a sensational, syncopated, three-finger style. It made people sit up and listen to it. It made people want to imitate it. In fact, the proprietor, the, the main MC of the Grand Ole Opry, uh, Judge George D. Hay, he, he, he described Earl Scruggs as the man who makes the banjo talk. And that style now is known around the world, but, but in the 1945 and 1946, Earl Scruggs were one of the few people who were, was playing it. So Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys made their music so popular during those years through their broadcasts, through their one-night stands, through their Columbia records, that little by little, people began to refer to the sound they heard and to the musicians who left Monroe and organized their own bands or the musicians who heard the music and created their own bands. They began to describe it as bluegrass. So nobody can say exactly when that happened, but sometime in the mid or late 1950s, people began to describe this uh, flurry of bands who in some, one way or another sounded like Bill Monroe. They be began to describe it as bluegrass. And the music has had sort of an evolutionary development since that time, the same way that the larger country music field has. And so you, you, you do put bluegrass under the big umbrella of country music. Oh, yeah. 
Although by the late 50s, partly because of the rock and roll invasion, which made it hard for any traditional band to flourish, and because the larger country field, which was beginning to be self-conscious about its image, it became harder and harder for bluegrass musicians to gain a public hearing. It was hard to get your music played on jukeboxes, harder and harder to get it played on uh, radio disc jockey shows. So bluegrass began to develop its own infrastructure. They began to uh, eventually create their own record labels. They began to have festivals where bluegrass musicians could play and um, began to have certain radio shows where nothing but bluegrass was played. So beginning as part of the country music field, it, it became a sort of a self-conscious commercial entity they decided if, if we want to thrive and flourish, if we want our music to be sold, we got to do something that enables the musicians to uh, to make make money from their art. Well, didn't Flat and Scruggs begin to perform as a duo? Flat and Scruggs started out w- with Bill Monroe. Lester was the guitar player. Earl was the banjo player. In 1948, they left Monroe's band created their own band called the Foggy Mountain Boys, named after one of the Carter family's songs. Bill Monroe was, of course, was heartbroken. You know, he had created what he thought was a great band, and here two of his top musicians had left him. For a long, long time, Bill Monroe wouldn't speak to either one of them. There's dead silence, you know. He thought, he, he thought they had betrayed him. He'd, it took Bill Monroe a long, long time to realize that imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, that all these musicians out in the world there that were playing his music were, were, were pay, actually paying tribute to him. When the Stanley Brothers created their own band in the late 40s, they got a, a, a contract from the Columbia record label, and in anger, Bill Monroe left that label and went to DECA. But again, he just didn't realize, you know, what, what, what a tribute that people like the Stanley Brothers were paying. They, they wanted to dress like him. They wanted to do his songs. They wanted to play his music in the style that he had popularized. It wasn't until the 60s that Bill Monroe eventually accepted the mantle of the father or the patriarch of bluegrass music. But in the beginning, you know, he was, he was upset by what was happening. A while back, you did a some interviews with Charles Reagan Wilson at Ole Miss. And in one of your interviews, you said something to the effect that contemporary country music represents the concerns of its largely nine-to-five audience today. And let's kind of wrap up on that as country music in the 21st century. You know, uh, I have to make a confession, and of course I may have already made it in, in this discussion, but I haven't really listened very carefully to what's described as country music lately. You know, it, it's gone this direction and I've gone mine. I'm still happy listening to the old records of Merle Haggard and Hank Williams and uh, Patsy Cline, people like that. And you may know, if you've seen my book, Country Music USA, the most latest revision uh, has a, the, the, latest, the, the last chapter of the book is written by a young woman named Tracy Laird, who teaches at Agnes Scott in Atlanta. And I did that deliberately because I was afraid I wouldn't do justice to contemporary music. I wanted to get someone young who actually listened to the music, who probably liked it and understood it. I thought I thought there ought, ought to be a discussion of it, but it ought to be done by somebody like uh, Tracy who understood it better than I did. So 
Anything I say about contemporary country music might be unfair because I just uh, haven't paid as, cl as close attention to it as I have to the older styles. I think they may still be singing about working people. They may, may be telling good stories, but I personally just don't like the way it sounds. It doesn't have that old, uh, good old distinctiveness that I once heard in the music, you know, as I was growing up and, and evolving. Hey, there's nothing wrong with your opinions. I ha <laughs> I'm in total agreement. Yeah, I'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed, I think, to name a lot of who, who the, the current superstars are. I know one of them is a young woman from uh, my home area, um, Miranda Lambert. She's from Lindale, Texas, and that was the first post office we had was in Lindale. Well, Bill Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign, and so are there any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners before we sign off? I'm just pleased to have been part of the Ken Burns documentary on country music. You know, this man who has spent a lifetime documenting what he considers—he loves America, and he spent a lifetime documenting what he considers to be the iconic moments, the iconic institutions of American life. And I'm glad that he's chosen country music as one of those iconic phenomena. And uh, in a sense— I see this documentary as being a validation of my life's work and of the culture that I grew up in. Well, Bill, well said. And I want to thank you for being with us today. Bill Malone, the author of Country Music USA. Thank you for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I have known Bill Malone for more than a decade. He's just a great storyteller. Some people say that country music is three chords and the truth. Talking with Bill Malone is like listening to a country music song. This man from Tyler, Texas, professor at Tulane University, has, through his work, his publications, and conversations, informed not just those of us in this country, but everywhere about the importance of country music to the cultural life of the United States and the world. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.